0: It is a treat to be able to introduce to you a great American public servant and educator who spent the last 45 years of his life in these two professions, uh, Professor Anthony Lake, who at the moment is the distinguished professor in the practice of diplomacy at the Edmund A. Wall School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. We all know him better for his service under President Bush, Vice President Gore, as the assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, which was um, uh, in the early, from 1993 to 1997, and before that he was a professor, in fact he was the five college professor of international relations at the five colleges that make up that consortium in Western Massachusetts. Um, Professor Lake Graduated uh, in 1961 from the University of the Chicago East. Uh, he read, you don't remember where that is, do you? That's Harvard University. He read International Economics at Trinity College, Cambridge, and then received his PhD from the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Fields at Princeton in 1974. Professor Lake.
1: Uh, Thank you, and I uh, am both grateful and amazed that uh, you all appeared in weather like this, Uh, not to mention that I'm here. Uh, It's a cruel irony that I should, in fact, be in Chicago today. I've been wandering around in this with more hope than expectation, Uh, but I'm not taking it off until about 6 p.m. this afternoon when I'm sure it'll be uh, over. Uh, In fact, uh, last year... Uh, At exactly this time, uh, I went off on uh, a trip for UNICEF to look at HIV-AIDS clinics in uh, uh, Mozambique and Angola. And when I left, the evil empire and Darth Vader uh, were up two games to nothing uh, over Luke Skywalker and the Boston Red Sox. And I assumed, being a Red Sox fan, that it was over. Uh, Disappeared uh, looking at these clinics and things, came back to Maputo, uh, eight days later, with no, having had no access to uh, the internet or uh, anything, and turned on my television. There was CNN, and I saw this sea of red uh, on the screen, and I thought it must be a demonstration in Ukraine or, or something. And it turned out it was Boston, uh, and they were all Red Sox fans, and they were celebrating, and they had pulled off the greatest comeback since Dunkirk, and I had missed it all. So I'm told that my friends in Washington are taking up an emergency appeal to send Tony Lake abroad before this afternoon's game, but it's, uh, I guess it's going to be too late. Anyway, uh, because of the rain, I'm going to have to leave just a little before 2, so I'll try to be somewhat brief. But I want to talk about a large subject. <clears throat> when I was in the uh, White House or earlier in the State Department or before that in the White House again, uh, I've had trouble holding a job, uh, the uh, a phenomenon that I noted always was that inevitably immediate issues would go to the top of my inbox uh, at the expense of the more important issues. Uh, so with Clinton, uh, not that they were unimportant, we spent a lot of time working, of course, on Bosnia and Haiti and all the immediate issues, uh, and somewhat less on some of the underlying uh, uh, but larger issues, um, although I am being here at the University of Chicago reminds me, uh, very proud that uh, I uh, was one of those who really pushed hard on getting NATO enlargement uh, through. Uh, And I remember coming here to the University of Chicago and getting the hell beat out of me by an apparently unanimous faculty, which thought it was insane. And I'll be glad to debate the the results of it with anybody if I can find them again. Uh, In any case, We can sort of think of these kinds of threats. Uh, I call them simmering national uh, security threats because I think we Americans, uh, uh, in looking at the national security threats that go bang, Iran, Iraq, uh, North Korea, et cetera, and I'll be glad to talk about those in our discussion. I would love to. Um, We don't pay enough attention to the threats that don't meet the headlines because we're kind of used to them. Uh, it's as if we were the famous frogs in the in a pot. I've never done it uh, because I believe in being humane to frogs. But that if you put frogs in a cold water and then gradually turn up the heat in the pot, they won't notice until they're boiling. Uh, so let me talk about some threats like this and there are a lot of them out there whether it's global warming or the competition for water resources or proliferation issues or the possible talibanization of pakistan or saudi arabia uh, which you can see in little ways possibly happening down the road that would be catastrophic Um, i could go on and on uh, with them but let me pick out uh, five of them and talk about each very briefly uh, because I think they're all national security threats. Uh, one is the challenge of China, and I want to suggest that we look at it through a different prism than we are now. Uh, the second is our national deficit uh, and trade imbalances, which is a national security issue in my view, uh, even though it's not written about that way. Uh, a third uh, would be <coughs> excuse me, the issue of poverty, uh fourth the issue of the hiv aids pandemic and the fifth very briefly the problem of uh mines landmines and i'm want to talk about the last three because i was in town all day yesterday uh, for unicef Uh, i chair the u.s fund uh, and uh, for a uh, conference on landmines because i chair a group that trains dogs uh, to, to sniff landmines around the world but i want to talk about those issues as also national security issues although obviously they are humanitarian uh, as well Uh, let me start with china Uh, and maybe i'll start i shouldn't take the time but as i ate my sandwich across the way uh, and thought about what i might say about china i was reminded of a meal i had in beijing uh, a couple of years ago i was there with the uh, and this is we'll show you just how Unserious, I have been through most of my life. In any case, um, I was there with a uh, delegation from our National Defense University in Georgetown meeting at their National Defense University, which is a, a big deal there. <clears throat> and we had three days of talks, and uh, we had saved Taiwan for the uh, last afternoon, and predictably uh, all hell broke loose. Uh, and then we uh, went to dinner <clears throat> at the best restaurant in uh, P- uh, Beijing, or one of them called the Peking Duck. Uh, and at dinner, we were supposed to embrace each other and talk about our peace-loving peoples and how we really didn't mean anything mean we'd said to each other, et cetera, et cetera. But the uh, commandant of, the, uh, of their NDU, a crusty old four-star general who'd never been, I think, outside China, was still angry. Uh, and so rather than welcoming us and talking about peaceful relations, et cetera, he went off into a diatribe about Taiwan. Uh, and this irritated me, but I wasn't going to say anything. Then we started the dinner, uh, which was wonderful, but it began, you, you eat there the whole duck, uh, and it began with the two feet, which had been beaten into a sort of gelatinous form so that you could choke them down. And I choked down the first one because the general was looking at me. I looked across, and my dean and good friend Bob Gallucci uh, had taken his, I could see, and put him in his napkin and was in the process of putting him into his pocket, and then I really got irritated because the general, as payback for my having been involved in sending two aircraft carriers there in 1996, off the straight to Taiwan, uh, pointed at the other foot and made me that as well. So now I'm really getting irritated, but okay. So then they start serving the rest of the duck, and it was very good. We're all enjoying it, and through the interpreter, I'm trying to make nice with the general. And then he uh, calls for uh, silence and uh, says to the three tables of the two delegations, uh, I'd like to ask Mr. Lake a uh, question. He said, why is it, through the interpreter, why is it that in China, implicit parentheses, an ancient civilization with a marvelous cuisine, we eat a wonderful bird called the duck, and you in America, implicit uh." a a new, barely a civilization with horrible cuisine, Uh, you eat something called, a dry thing called turkey. Well, I got mad, uh, I'm afraid. I couldn't show it, but now I'm really mad because he's insulted turkey. He's insulted Benjamin Franklin. He's insulted the pilgrims. He's insulted a NATO ally. He's insulted, I mean, this goes right. he was damn near our national bird, but I couldn't really say very much, so I said, well, general, I apologize for this. I said, "General, uh, you got to understand. This is a cultural thing, and in the United States, there is a great American that we all na- love named Walt Disney. go watch uh, Walt Disney, and said the interpreter. Uh, and Walt Disney invented a character that we all love very much, uh, and his name is Donald Duck. And that is why we do not eat duck in the United States." You know, at which. The, Everybody started trying to look at And immediately, Gallucci, who's a real wise ass, says, "And general, that's why we don't eat mice either. Uh, oh. So someday, somewhere, the general is going to, with huge condescension, <laughs> tell a bunch of Americans why they don't eat mice or ducks. And there's going to be a lot of uh, my revenge will be complete then. In any case, <coughs> very briefly, uh, China. I think our first problem with China flows and how we manage the relationship with China flows from their essential problems there. As you know, their economy is growing very rapidly, although it's overheated in the uh, production uh, sector, so they're going to have to cool it off somehow uh, internally, but it is growing very rapidly. However, the reforms that are producing that growth are also producing huge unemployment, which in turn hundreds of millions of people Uh, and there is a growing gap between rich and poor, as the uh, Chinese uh, government itself said uh, two weeks ago, and therefore there is growing unrest. Uh, So that's problem one. Problem two is the Chinese Communist Party has lost its ideological legitimacy uh, since they're barely communists in their economic uh, policies. And problem three, of course, is what do they do about Taiwan, an issue which is of still uh, extraordinary importance uh, to uh, all of them. So how do they resolve this? Well, economically, they can't afford to build a social safety net, uh, and therefore their answer to uh, the uh, social unrest is simply to repress it, which we're seeing more and more of. And they uh, are substituting in many ways their loss of ideological legitimacy, uh, and the unpopularity of their elites uh, with the corruption the decline in some social services, their healthcare care system uh, has been in decline for some years uh, with they can't appeal to communism so they more and more appeal to nationalism uh, and especially nationalism over Taiwan. Now the problem from our point of view with this politically is that the more they emphasize the nationalism the more our right here uh, will become Uh, uh, hostile towards China, and the more they repress the dissent, the more our left on human rights grounds becomes uh, hostile to China. And that is a problem because it seems to me that we need to maintain uh, a sensible course uh, more or less in the middle in which we neither embrace them as our partners, as Clinton did, and I winced, uh, this is in his second term, uh, or uh, call them our uh, enemies, which could be very dangerous, Uh, as uh, we tended to do more recently until just the last couple of years. It's not enough, however, that we simply have a sensible policy because the main challenge, I don't say threat or danger, but the main challenge from China uh, is not military. Uh, We can manage that even though their military is growing and will be in a significantly enhanced position vis-a-vis Taiwan within a couple of years. Uh, uh, We can manage that at least for a decade, although I wish we weren't drawing down some of the assets we're drawing uh, down in the Pacific. Their challenge uh, can be seen if, for example, you wander around Africa now, and everywhere you will see Chinese businessmen, uh, or in Latin America, or in Central Asia, or in Southeast Asia, uh, opening up markets for cheap Chinese goods, which can have a very negative impact, in fact, on uh, local uh, producers themselves of goods. Uh, and, more importantly, in the scramble for oil. Ten years ago, China produced uh, uh, more oil, uh, I mean, exported more oil uh, uh, than it uh, needed. In other words, it was a net net exporter. Now, by Chinese calculations, or by 2020, uh, China will need to import three times as much as it uh, produces. Uh, And that means that throughout the world, Uh, Chinese businesses are not just competing for, but buying unsold oil fields, a recent $2 billion deal in Angola, uh, other places. Uh, Gulf of Guinea uh, will be within a decade or two producing as much oil as the Persian Gulf, uh, I've read. Uh, And the Chinese are way ahead of us in competing for that oil uh, with the Africans. So we need to deal with this. Uh, and the answer, seems to me, is not a new Cold War or a lot of rhetoric about Chinese containment. It is to pull up our socks and figure out how we can compete better by becoming more competitive uh, here at home uh, and abroad by a, a better use of OPEC or XM Bank loans or whatever because Chinese companies backed by the government can operate in a way uh, that our companies can't because they don't have to worry so much about a profit margin. This is related to a second uh, national security threat, uh, and that is our federal deficits. A uh, stunning fact, uh, it's sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less recently, but we are borrowing a billion dollars a day to fund our federal deficit. Uh, and maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I remember when a billion dollars was real money. In addition, our trade deficit is growing, went up 25% from, as I recall, 2003 to 2004 and set a new record again the first quarter of this year. The result of this is that foreign entities are accumulating trillions of dollars of dollars. Uh, They are investing... Uh, a lot of money in the American economy. I think they own about $3 trillion worth of our economy now. And they are buying very large quantities of US Treasury notes uh, that we are floating in order to pay for the federal deficit. And this is maybe a great deal for everybody because in effect what it is is that, in its simplest terms, is that they have a great deal because they get to sell their products in our markets uh, and they get to loan uh, us money to do it uh, and then more and more, own more and more of us. And we have a great deal because we, since we, it's un-American to save, uh, we get to consume all we want of these cheap foreign goods uh, and we get to borrow. And it's a great deal, uh, but I do not believe, as Bob Rubin uh, keeps saying, that this can go on forever. If you have a personal banker, who would allow you to do what we're doing with the rest of the world, then send me the name uh, because I want that bank. Uh, And in any case, it means it has a national security, another national security aspect, uh, which is that the second biggest uh, buyer of US Treasury notes is China. And if we, in 1996, when we were in a crisis with them over their lobbying missiles over Taiwan, we went through very detailed planning both on what we would do militarily if there was attack on Taiwan, but short of that, how we could use economic pressures against China, which would undoubtedly hurt us, but would hurt them more in various forms of sanctions, or if you sanction them over human rights or whatever. while China certainly does not have an interest in collapsing our economy because that would hurt, well, it would devastate the global economy and hurt them too, they have more leverage over us, I believe, than we do over them because all they would have to do is to go into the bond markets uh, and say we're thinking about selling treasury notes uh, and the value of the notes would suddenly go down, we would have to raise interest rates, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And as a national security matter, I don't like the leverage uh, being on the side of Beijing rather than on us. So what do we do about the federal deficit? Well, uh, I've studied economics now three times, including uh, at Cambridge with Amartya Sen, who was at the time Nobel, Peace, uh, Nobel Prize winner at the time, a young uh, instructor. Uh, I meant to write him to tell him that, getting the Nobel Prize was the second most difficult thing he had uh, ever done. Uh, Clearly, trying to teach me economics was the first. Each time, the second and third times I studied it, uh, when I found my old notes, I had no sense. I didn't even, not only did I not remember the notes, I had no sense of deja vu that I had even ever looked at this subject before. So I will not tell us how to solve our economic uh, problems. But I will say that the way not to do it uh, is to cut back on those kinds of programs that will make us more competitive in the global economy. It is idiocy to be cutting back on the National Science Foundation, on science uh, programs in schools, on all of the programs that will help us to compete uh, abroad. Nor do I believe that it would make sense in the longer run uh, for us to cut back on the kinds of programs that are important to our national security including, especially, our intelligence community, um, most of our military programs, or as national security issues, uh, such threats as poverty, uh, HIV, AIDS, et cetera. Let me explain why I put them in that category. Certainly, poverty is a humanitarian issue. Uh, And I could go on and on about this uh, and won't, but uh, three billion people live on less than $2 a day. Uh, 30,000 children uh, in poor areas die every day of preventable causes. Uh, There is a misperception here, partly because of the appeals of charitable institutions, that and it's a strengthened one every time we work, talk about poverty. However, of Africa and other poor areas being mendicants and people who are shiftless and no good, sitting around waiting for us to give them a handout, and that is absolutely not true. Across Africa, every morning, people are getting up, going to work, or trying to find work, or walking miles to get firewood uh, or uh, water are sitting on street corners and cities fixing bicycles with no tools which takes hours and hours and hours etc cetera, etc cetera. being poor is hard work and they are working hard and we ought to see poverty first of all I, I I won't go on and on but I feel very strongly about this as an opportunity to put people to work uh, uh, rather than as something that we are simply uh, dealing with through uh, handouts but poverty is beyond the humanitarian implications, a national security issue. Poverty fuels conflicts. One study shows that, uh, (coughs) excuse me, every time per capita, and I'm not sure about the causality, but every time per capita income doubles, the uh, possibility or the likelihood of an internal conflict uh, falls uh, by half. Uh, Poverty leads to failed states, and it's in failed states like Somalia or Liberia or Sierra Leone, where you get criminal organizations, uh, terrorists, uh, et cetera. Poverty, uh, because health care systems aren't good, uh, is a likely place for incubating uh, infectious diseases that can come back and literally kill us. Poverty leads to environmental degradation, as I've seen many times in Haiti, which in turn leads to more poverty, leading to these other problems as well. And I believe you can't prove it linear, in a linear sense that poverty leads to terrorism. I am not saying it produces the leaders of terrorism. Most of those are middle class folks, as we saw in 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. But there can be no doubt that poverty helps to spawn future terrorists and the followers of terrorism. The rage in Muslim areas over the American intervention in Iraq, and all the polls show this, is surely fueled by the frustration of all the people in Muslim, young people in Muslim areas who cannot find uh, jobs, and unemployment there is, is very high. One of the most important global challenges before us lies in the fact that over the next decade one billion young people will enter the global labor force, and one of the great issues of our time is will most of them find jobs? because there's just a natural psychological impulse, if you're a young person, you can't find a job, to say, okay, if I can't live like the pictures of the West that I see on television, then I'm going to reject the whole thing, as I was taught in my madrasa. Uh, it's corrupt, it's decadent, etc. I don't want it, because you know you can't have it. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so poverty in that sense also is a, a national security issue. HIV-AIDS which is one of the great contributors to poverty uh, around the world and certainly around Africa, uh, is not only a devastating uh, human problem, uh, 20 million people dead, uh, over 42 million people infected. Uh, I'm seeing in the headlines now as uh, around the world. Uh, I'm seeing in the headlines now uh, this huge concern, as there should be, about the possible spread of avian flu which is mutating into migratory birds uh, uh, as well as poultry and uh, human beings, and we should be very concerned about that. Millions of people could die, but that's new. HIV-AIDS is old, so we're not giving it similar headlines, and yet uh, we have a situation in which last year uh, uh, half a million uh, kids under five died of AIDS and well over half a million kids got infected. Uh, And there are 2.2 million kids uh, who are HIV positive now uh, in Africa, uh, and less than 2% of them have access to antiretrovirals. I could go on and on. It is a huge disaster, and since we've got it sort of under control here in the United States, we don't pay much attention uh, to it. When I was in Swaziland, uh, I found, well, I didn't find it, I mean, I was told, that of the women in Swaziland, the most productive members of the society, uh, who are between 19 and 49, one half of them are infected with HIV AIDS. One half of them. This is a Rwanda without machetes. It's worse than anything you can uh, imagine. So it is a humanitarian crisis, but it is also a national security issue for a variety of reasons. One is that it is not only uh, creating huge poverty, but it, it, it affects elites mostly. So African armies, just at the moment in which Africans are trying to take a leadership and supply more troops for peacekeeping operations there, as in Darfur, through the African Union, uh, are being devastated by HIV-AIDS. It's devastating to our potential markets in Africa uh, because investment is lagging, because why would you invest in a country where 3% of your labor force is likely to die every year or where you have to train so many more people because you assume some of them are going to be dying uh, of AIDS. It affects uh, teachers uh, and schools and that means one of the alternatives to the private schools, religious schools that spew hate, uh, are are getting devastated uh, by the uh, disease. And while the uh, pandemic is much the worst in Africa, uh, we ought to be concerned about something that you occasionally see references to, uh, but only occasionally, and that is the following. In India, in China, and in Russia, the infection rates are still under 1% uh, and more or less confined to various segments of the societies. When it gets over 1%, it starts to break out into the general population. This is what happened in Africa 10, 15 years ago. In fact, the infection rates there are the same as they were in Africa back in the early 1990s. The numbers of people uh, infected are about 7 million, about the same. Imagine now the the healthcare systems in India and China and Russia are much better, so it won't be the same. Uh, progression but imagine it's only half or a quarter as bad as Africa given the statistics I was uh, giving you what's going to be the effect on the global economy what's going to be the effect on geopolitical relations if those nations ten years from now because it takes about a decade for the pandemic to do its work uh, start to uh, look like Africa unimaginable landmines national security issue. there's good news here Just 10, 15 years ago, we estimated 100 million landmines around the world. Now we're down to 50 or 45 million. More mines are coming out of the fields, thanks to the efforts of the American government, other governments, a lot of NGOs, uh, that are going into the fields. But it is still a huge problem, 45 million uh, around the world. And this is a humanitarian issue, tens of thousands of people dying in the minefields, but also a huge national security issue because... It's not just that people get blown up, it's that villages die if people don't go, uh, dare go outside and till their fields. Uh, It means that, well I could go on and on, but that in a place like the Jaffna Peninsula in Sri Lanka, where we've sent a bunch of dogs. There, well in Sri Lanka as a whole, there is a tremendous political debate going on now over whether or not to turn the ceasefire into a peace agreement for a peace to be more than a piece of paper you need a constituency a political constituency for peace and the problem is that so long as the landmines are in the fields uh, and in the Jaffna peninsula the scene of the fighting and where most of the tamils are hundreds of thousands of refugees are waiting to go home but even though there's a ceasefire they can't go home because of all the mines a million of them there it's in an area that's smaller than about a quarter the size of chicago a million of them So you build this constituency of peace not only through politicians and diplomats talking to each other, but by bringing peace to people, um, as we failed to do enough with the Palestinians in the 90s. We were hell on wheels on the diplomacy side. We weren't very good at showing the Palestinians the benefits of peace or the peace process, and therefore the Intifada became popular again. You see what I'm saying? And and so landmines are in many ways, again, we think of it as a humanitarian issue. It's a national security issue. So, uh, what do we do? Well, there's a lot of things, obviously, to do. I won't run through them. Uh, am I an optimist that will do them? Uh, the answer is yes, I am, for a variety of reasons. One is I'm seeing signs now in our own society that people are beginning to see the need to get serious uh, and that there is no free lunch for America. Uh, I see it in signs of a, of a Tom Friedman column a week ago saying that it was... Uh, that we are not serious when we pass large tax cuts just as we go into a highly extensive war, expensive war. We're not serious uh, when we have a pork-laden energy bill just at the time that uh, gas prices are increasing. Katrina, I think, is a huge wake-up call about the importance of having an efficient government. I sense the beginning, uh, and I hope our politicians in both parties have the guts to take advantage of it, of saying, okay, the party's over, it's time to be serious if we're going to compete uh, in the 21st century because we are losing that edge very rapidly right now in a variety of ways. I'm an optimist because of what I've seen in the human spirit uh, abroad of people fighting and working on these issues. Uh, I saw it in a lot, and I won't tell you the stories, uh, I find them very moving every time I think of them, of the HIV-positive women uh, in Swaziland and Mozambique who are out in the villages knowing they're going to die who are helping others uh, grow vegetable plots or write their wills or uh, fight against uh, stigma, uh, et cetera. I'm an optimist because of what I see a lot of uh, NGOs doing here in the United States over Katrina, the outpouring of support uh, for UNICEF and others uh, through the uh, tsunami. Uh, The people I met last night at a conference on landmines, NGOs who are Uh, including a number of people who are out there in the minefields at great risk uh, taking them out. Uh, The students I have who are out there campaigning on Darfur uh, and on human rights, uh, And again, maybe uh, it's too optimistic, but I do think there is the beginnings uh, of a new approach uh, internationally as well as here uh, at home. Uh, And of course, finally, I'm an optimist because I'm a Red Sox fan. And I got three more hours of it. So thank you.